Sarah really covered all the ground that we're going to cover today in Romans 6. Um, all I want to do with the grown-ups is just go back over it with a little more detail from the text. Um, so if you've got a Bible, please open to uh, Romans chapter 6, and I'll pray for us as we open God's Word together. Father, we just really bless you for your servant Paul, um, for his clarity of thought, for his faithfulness, for the incredible ideas that you gave him, for the way your spirit moved him to write so clearly, so lucidly, so gloriously about your gospel. And we thank you for his guidance this morning, and we pray that our hearts would be opened as his was opened to the abundance of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the beginning of Romans chapter 6, the first question, <clears throat> Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And I don't know whether or not that question kind of makes sense to you. Um, maybe you think it's a really stupid question. <laughs> like, why, why would you think that sitting was a good idea? Um, but, but maybe you understand it a bit. I want to try and get into um, the, the mindset of the people who were really asking this question. We believe that Paul didn't just make it up, but he's actually heard this question asked to him as he's explained the gospel around the world. Some people who've begun to understand what he's talking about um, are actually deeply concerned about what this gospel will do. It sounds like a kind of false teaching or heresy to them. And their concern is, surely this will create lawless people. Uh, surely this will create people who have no interest in being righteous. They will just go ahead and, and do whatever they want and completely give way to sin. I expect a lot of these worried, anxious people were Jewish, but maybe also some upright pagans were also worried about Paul's gospel. So um, before we uh, go into Paul's answer uh, as to why this question is totally wrong, wrong-headed, I actually I want to begin by thinking about uh, wh why it's it's on some some good ground, why it's partially right. Um, and I want to think about just how Paul's got to this point in Romans chapter 6, how he set up this uh, realization of this question, uh, thinking about uh, chapters 1 through 5. Let's review what Paul has said about the gospel so far. Okay, so he started with a big problem. The ultimate problem in the universe is the problem of unrighteousness, of human unrighteousness, which is a universal problem. And it's a big problem to God because God is the loving father who loves every person and wants everybody to be in heaven. But he is also the righteous judge who must punish sin uh, justly. Right. So um, this is an enormous problem for God. If anything can maybe be described as hard for God, then this is the hardest thing he's ever faced. This question of how can I save people who are wicked, who are unrighteous? Um, and Paul's describing that now the problem has been solved by Jesus at the cross and the solution to the problem is completely mind-blowing because what God did to solve it is uh, that the eternal son of God was himself incarnated he was born as a helpless baby into his own creation where he lived the perfect life that Adam and all of his children failed to live a life of love humility and obedience to the father and then he died a brutal, horrible public death that he alone did not deserve to die. So Jesus took the death that he didn't deserve in order to give us the life that we didn't deserve. And it's magnificent beyond measure. It totally solves God's huge problem, the big problem of the universe. 
And it's beyond all imagining. Nobody who ever lived before Jesus imagined this. It's, it's not found in, in any literature or philosophy or science that ever existed. And we, we see that even Satan, the great fallen angel, the great enemy of God, didn't imagine that God would solve the problem in this way because Satan actually helped it to happen. He walked into the trap himself. He didn't see that this was how God was saving the world. Satan, when he, when he killed Jesus on the cross, he thought that he could swallow up the author of life and put the author of life to death. But he found that having swallowed him, that he gave him an upset stomach and Satan had to vomit back out not only Jesus, but also all the other people who had put their trust in God over the centuries. So it was a massive own goal for Satan and he didn't see this plan coming. So Paul's truly excited about this, and he thinks it's so wonderful. Uh, it's just a wonderful story, and he can't stop singing about it. Um, and so far in Romans, he's been laying out over and over uh, what the death of Jesus on the cross has accomplished. It's accomplished so much more than forgiveness, as we've seen before. We talked a couple of weeks back about the three big theological words of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He accomplished substitution by switching places with us. And then he also turned away the anger of God by propitiation. We remember that big word propitiation is a gift that turns away anger and restores a relationship. And he also poured his own righteousness into us by imputation, right? He gave us his righteousness. We received the very righteousness of God as if it were our own. So that all of our sin is now paid for and we appear before the Father perfect, spotless, righteous, whatever we've done in our lives. And all of this is given by God completely free of charge, purely by his own grace. And it is received by anyone in the world merely through faith belief that Jesus is indeed able to do this all right Amen. so this is so marvelous and if we fully understood Paul properly to this point it really does bring up this question well then I can do anything I want I can do anything I want right because what harm can sin do now it's completely totally paid for and actually since God's grace increases the more that our sin increases, it actually might be a good thing to sin because it results in bringing more grace into the world. And grace is the most wonderful, precious thing in the world. All right. So I do want to affirm that this question is built on quite a good foundation, actually. Has it occurred to you uh, that this is the result of the gospel? Um, and actually, you may have found personally, as I have found, that your own sweetest encounters with God, your sweetest moments with God, come on the back end of your worst sins, right? Because he meets you in his mercy. And that experience of the mercy of God is one of the most precious things on earth. So we really might think in our hearts, should I not sin, that grace may abound. It does have a positive effect in releasing God's grace to us. So I want to affirm you that if you've come to this question yourself, um, then you have understood a very deeply important part of the gospel. And before we turn to Paul's real answer, why it's actually wrong, I want to dignify the question for a minute and think about why it's right. Um, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? It shows that we understand grace, that salvation really is unconditional and grace is precious and worth having. 
So when you think about people, we all have a sense of justice written deeply into us, don't we? It's deep in our DNA. Uh, if you raise children, uh, how early on in their lives do they start to say, that's not fair? How early on is that? It's pretty much the year they start talking, right? Um, our whole innate sense of the world and indeed the whole order of the society that we're brought up into says there, is, there should be fairness. Fairness should be universal. You should get what you deserve. And both our nature and nurture agree on this point. If you work hard, if you do well, you'll be praised, you'll be rewarded. But if you act out and you break the rules, then you're, you should expect to be punished. It's so deep in our DNA that it's beyond question. And all the other religions of the world work on this basic principle. So you've got Hindu karma, what goes around comes around. The universe is going to give you what you deserve in your reincarnation. And you've got the five pillars of Islam. You submit and you obey these rules and you'll balance out your sin and you'll be rewarded with heaven. And we like these religions. We like this idea because it makes such intuitive sense to us. And no one who's part of these religions really has cause to question it. Of course, the universe would work in this way. It's cause and effect. It's just a simple law of physics. But if we followed Paul properly in the first five chapters of Romans, we, we realize we have to make a clean break with this most basic belief. And friends, that's really hard to do. I would actually go far as to say that only a minority of Christians manage to break with this core belief of cause and effect to really get out of the habit and break with the mindset that I earn my favor with God and to realize I do not earn it in any way, not through any amount of obedience or any number of good works and not because I'm a good kid or because I hold the right opinions or because I come from the right family. It does not change God's love for me one iota. It's very hard to come all the way through to that belief. And to realize that God has loved me first and he has loved me freely and unconditionally. So if you do come to the point of saying, well, then I can do anything I want, then my first response to you is, yes, yes, you get it. <laughs> You've made the truly difficult break with karma, with cause and effect. And only when we've come that far are we ready to move on in Romans chapter six with the real answer, Paul's answer, which is, no, by no means. Um, and the reason is not that we subtract anything from the glorious gospel that's come before. We don't take away any of the great theological realities of substitution, propitiation or imputation, but we add something. We add another thought that comes in this chapter. We add union, union with Christ. So the process of being saved by Jesus on the cross has united us with our savior says paul in this chapter okay this is truly huge glorious idea um so let's look at it in verses two through five paul answered by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
All right. So new theological principle for us today is union with Christ. Union is a word that's in this passage. And the Greek word for union is symphutoi. And it's where we get our English word symphony. So if you want an image for union, think of a 200-person uh, symphony orchestra playing together, all those people making one beautiful sound. That's the idea of union in the Greek. Um, and in Paul's words, we are united with Jesus in both his death and his resurrection. Okay, now we've got to remember that Paul did not just add this idea on in order to answer the problem of sin. Uh, it's, not, it's not troubling that he gets to this question. Uh, actually, union with Christ is a deeply essential component. It's the real reason that substitution, propitiation, and imputation work. You know, union is necessary. In the process of being saved, we are bound to Jesus. We are bound to him a bit like uh, Benjamin and Miriam were bound together in Sarah's video. Uh, we're bound to him so that he can take our sin and give us his righteousness and count us as part of his body that is acceptable in the sight of God. So Paul says that this binding happens at our baptism. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism. Now, when, when Paul talks about baptism, we need to remember that he's not just thinking about the water. He's thinking about the whole uh, event of baptism that includes faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those three components go together whenever the New Testament talks about baptism. And in practice, the three parts of baptism might not happen at the same time. They might not all happen simultaneously. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. But they're all included in what Paul means by baptism here. So when he starts talking about baptism, he hasn't abandoned faith at all. He hasn't stopped talking about faith and, and opted for sacramental language instead. Um, he's still thinking about faith included in our baptism. When we think about the three components of baptism, they actually all tell the same story. They all tell a story of dying and rising. Because beneath the waters of chaos and death, or maybe symbolically sprinkled with the waters of chaos and death, and we die, we symbolically die, we sink into a watery grave, and then we rise again. We emerge from the water and dry off and begin a new life. So water baptism, the symbology is deeply uh, of dying and rising. And it's, it's similar with coming to faith, isn't it? Because when we come to faith, we renounce the former foundation of our lives. We say those things that I trusted in before to save me, those good works or those idols, they're dead to me now. And I turn and I start building an entirely new life on the entirely new foundation of Jesus. So it's another kind of death and resurrection. And in receiving leaving the hope being born again, reborn. We're starting over, just as John, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, and just as John said in his prologue in chapter 1, to those who would receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this too, this receiving of the Holy Spirit, is the end of a former life and the beginning of a new life. It's a death and resurrection. Okay, so that's what we mean by baptism. All three of the components of baptism work together and they all tell the same story. And Paul adds here what might already be obvious to you, that this dying and rising that we go through when we begin our Christian lives is a participation in the very death and resurrection of Jesus. 
So here's kind of the way I think this works. Jesus truly died on the cross. And when we symbolically die in baptism, God counts it as if we had died on the cross with Jesus. Right. So we know that the scripture says the wages of sin is death. And after baptism, God counts it as if we have paid those wages, that we have died for our sins. And we will therefore never need to die for them again because there's no double jeopardy in God's justice system. You can't be punished for the same crime twice. So you see that joining Jesus in his death through baptism is the mechanism of how substitution actually works. And similarly, being united with Jesus in his honorable sacrificial death is also the mechanism of how propitiation actually works, because the father counts it as our pleasing gift to restore the relationship. And finally, being united with Jesus in his glorious resurrection ushers in newness of life for us, which is how the mechanism of imputed righteousness works. I'm trying, it's kind of complicated. I'm trying to show you this, that actually union with Christ is the underlying reality um, of, of the method of salvation. So Paul doesn't talk about it as an add-on accessory idea to his gospel, but it's a deeply fundamental part of his gospel. But the reality of union with Christ puts a whole different spin on sin, doesn't it? That's why he raises it here under this question of shall we continue to sin? And this is my final point. Paul's point that we are now dead to sin. Verses 6 through 11. Paul concludes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. Such a rich feast. Uh, we could spend weeks just chewing on these words. But for now, I just want to explain a couple of details in what Paul's saying here. First, in verse 6, Paul uses the phrase, the body of sin. You see there in verse 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Uh, this is a potentially confusing phrase. Some theologians have misunderstood this to mean that our sin problem is rooted in our bodies, that it's our bodies that are sinful and they're a kind of prison to our spirits, which are not sinful. And that's a kind of Gnostic dualism where our bodies are bad and our souls are good. If this were the case, then killing our physical bodies would actually completely solve the sin problem. Um, but that's, that's wrong. That's not the idea. That's not the Bible's view of sin. And it's not Paul's view of sin here. Sin is not a body only problem. It's a whole person problem. So when Paul talks about the body of sin here, he surely means it metaphorically, similar to like the body of evidence. It means the sum total of all the evidence so he, what Paul's saying is that the sum total of all the sin the whole mass of sin was put to death in one go second little detail at the end of the same verse verse 6 suggests that before baptism people are enslaved to sin see that 
And that's right. That is indeed Paul's view. He, his view is that we are all born with a sinful nature that makes us slaves to sin. And that means we're not, it doesn't mean we're always compelled to act badly. It doesn't mean we always make the wrong moral choice. But without the salvation of God, we cannot stop sinning. We cannot choose to stop sinning. So that means all the time, every single day, we find ourselves doing things we hate, uh, even feeling compelled to do them self-destructive things and we find that we actually cannot stop wanting sin and that's what Paul means by slavery to sin but he says here a very amazing thing that rebirth in God puts an end to that slavery it ends because as far as sin is concerned concerned we're a dead slave <laughs> and you can't make a dead slave work for you anymore the process doesn't automatically take away our desire to sin, but it does give us along with it a new desire not to, a new desire for holiness. It doesn't automatically mean we won't sin, but it does give us the power to choose not to. Okay, so the Holy Spirit living within us now is leading us in a new life and we can avoid sin now if we yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and cooperate with him. As we go forward in the Bible, the Bible continues to be very gentle on us with our sin, especially the letter of 1 John. Uh, it's expecting us to continue to fall into sin. It provides ongoing means of forgiveness. It provides um, formulae for our confession to one another. And so that's, it, it's, like it's, it's gentle and it, it shows us that sin is going to keep being normal. But the Bible also tells us that holiness is now possible and it continues to call us forward into it. What it says is that what wasn't possible before is possible now. So I wonder if um, before you knew Jesus, you were the sort of person who tried really hard to be a good person. Uh, you worked really hard uh, to have a high moral standard for yourself. Um, and I wonder if in trying to do that, you discovered that it was impossible um, that what you were going for was out of reach. And, and, and that's kind of normal. Again, Paul's talked about how that pattern happens with, with all of us. Uh, Paul would say that's that's good. That's actually good. The, you, the law did its work in you and it led you to Christ. You discovered sin in yourself and you discovered your need for a savior. That was, that was good and right. But then he would go on to say, now try that holiness thing again, right? Because the effort that you expended once upon a time trying to earn your salvation could never, never succeed. But that same effort, if you expend it now, is going to have a radically different result. And the reason is that your relationship to sin has been profoundly changed. We have been set free from our slavery to sin, as Paul says in verse 7. And so the last detail I want to point out is the phrase dead to sin in verse 11. Paul writes, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This means to embrace the story of what really truly happened to us in our baptism. We were answerable to our former sins, but we are not anymore. We were enslaved to go on sinning, but we are not anymore because of our death with Jesus. And uh, quite a lot of commentators actually have said that our being dead to sin means being unresponsive to sin. 
like a dead body is unresponsive to light or sound or feeling that's how christians are to sin now but uh that seems uh completely out of touch with the reality of living the christian life um and uh john stott who i lean on for interpretation profoundly disagrees with the idea that it means that we're automatically responsive to sin we are still responsive to sin obviously we still get tempted um but what paul's saying here what he's commanding the church is to behave as if we're unresponsive to sin like kind of to play dead uh, like if you're in the woods in north carolina and you meet a black bear uh, the park rangers tell you to lie down and play dead and the bear will leave you alone i sort of think paul's saying a similar thing to um to behave as if we're dead to sin as if we're totally unresponsive to it so in summary, uh, far from promoting lawlessness, Paul's gospel uh, is actually more strongly opposed to sin than anything that came before it. Um, and it provides the only realistic way out of sin. So as a close, I want to think about what all this means in practice and think about Paul's closing instructions, which start in verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. All right, so notice that grace appears in this passage in verse 1 and verse 14, the beginning and the end of the part we're looking at. Um, the same grace that in verse 1 has justified us completely and unconditionally is now in verse 14, sanctifying us and leading us out of sin. So God is determined to save us and bring us to heaven, yes, because of his passionate love for us. But God is equally determined that we won't bring our sin with us to heaven. We have to part ways with it. We have to renounce it and we have to leave it behind. So Paul's conclusion in verse 12 is don't let sin reign and make you obey its passions. And the don't let means that we have a choice now. And so let's choose to flee sin together. Practically, uh, I think sin and temptation have a good number of tricks that they play on us uh, when, they, when they want us to get us to sin. So I want to close very quickly with six of temptation's best tricks and, um, and how we answer them out of Romans chapter six. Uh, trick number one is the trick of accusation. So it sounds like this. Temptation comes to us and it says, you've sinned so many times before and in far worse ways. Your rap sheet is already a mile long. What difference will it make to add one more line, right? The, the trick of accusation. And Paul's answer to this is, nope, my rap sheet was clean this morning. It's a blank page and I will not take this clean new page and stain it again. Trick number two is the trick of identity. And it sounds like this. You're only human and sin is what humans do. Look around you, ducks quack and humans sin. Why fight who you are? And Paul's answer is because it's not who I am, it's who I was. I have a new life now and a new identity as a child of God. What saints do is present themselves to God in holiness. 
Trick number three is the trick of mastery. Sin says, you belong to me and I can make you do what I want. Paul's answer is, nope, I belong to Jesus. He bought me fair and square and you can never make me follow you again. Trick number four is the trick of debt. So sin comes to us and says, you owe me. I helped you. I showed you some really good times. When you were down, I comforted you. I saved your life. And now you betray me. Paul's answer is, you never helped me. You only ever wanted to kill me. I owe you nothing. The one who gave his life for me, that's who I'll be in debt to forever. Trick number five is the trick of minimization. Sin says, what's the harm really? You really think this tiny sin would be a big deal to God? What a joke. Paul's answer, well, it was enough of a big deal to send Jesus to the cross. That sin is not what I do anymore. That's the old man. The new man doesn't love it, doesn't need it, and doesn't want it. So get it out of my face. And trick number six is the trick of inevitability. I think this might be the most compelling one of all. Sin says, I will get you in the end. You might win today, but you'll lose tomorrow. Why waste time fighting when you can just surrender now and get it over with? And Paul's answer to that is the one who is in me is stronger than the one who is in the world. Your days are numbered. Mine are eternal. I will be the one laughing over your grave. So those are my thoughts about the tricks that temptation plays on us and how Romans 6 answers them. So in our breakout groups now, I want to share uh, which of these resonated with you in your own experience. And let's ask each other, what do you find most helpful in motivating you in your fight against sin?